um, or a handful of us together in this uh, space. It's cool to be together. Thanks for having me. And I am very relieved to say that it actually is raining. Um, We have some very vulnerable and nerve-wracking Thursday, Friday moments where we are trying to uh, work alongside God to predict what the weather's going to be like, and uh, we're so relieved when we're actually right, and uh, we're not, uh, thankfully, looking outside at Alcana at a beautiful, sunny space. It is raining, and we made the right decision. Phew! So that's a good one. We're carrying on in our journey through Exodus, and in some ways, it's a whistle-stop tour as we look at the story of God redeeming the people of Israel out of Egypt. And it's a very important story if you're a follower of Jesus. This is not just a tale that's been told. This is a historical fact of history whereby God in His mighty, loving grace comes and redeems a people to reveal Himself to the world. And uh, by way of recap, we have the children of Abraham. Abraham has children. Uh, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. These 12 sons spend lots of their life in Egypt. Their family grows. Um, The Egyptian king that was really kind to them dies, and they live there in Egypt. But unfortunately, the new pharaohs that come in looks uh, way less favorably upon this growing family. This growing family is turning into a kind of country, (laughs) a people. And uh, basically what happens is that God had made a promise to Abraham almost 400 years before saying, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing and I'm going to give you some land from the place that you, that, that place you'll be a blessing and you will show the world that I am the one true God. And so we've picked up uh, last week where we saw that Moses... Uh, is born into Egypt uh, as an Israelite boy. He goes from papyrus basket because of the Pharaoh's uh, infanticide, whereby he wanted to kill every firstborn boy. And so his mother, by faith, puts him in a basket, floats down. The princess of the Pharaoh uh, picks him up, brings him into the palace. And so he goes from a papyrus basket to palace to prince to then out into pasture because of some of his own mistakes. And so Moses has had a really checkered and roller coaster life from living in a palace to looking after sheep. He's been through so much, this guy. And we're now picking up that God has this plan. And it's starting to gain momentum. God is starting to see the problems for the people of Israel, and his heart is beginning to break. He wants to see redemption happening to the people. And right at the end, we saw a little bit of hope. At the end of uh, chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God New. This is God's word. Lord, as we look at your scriptures, I pray that this beautiful and ancient story would become so much more than a story. It would become our story. God, that we, uh, this morning, as we listen into your words and your story, we would find ourselves moved into your story, included in to your fatherly affections for us, your story of redemption, your story of love, your story of grace. That God, not only would we experience, but almost feel the desire to participate in and partner with you in this beautiful story. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're heading into one of the most famous passages. 
of the, the Old Testament, Moses and the burning bush. If you went to Sunday school when you were a kid, let me tell you, you would have got to this one in one of the first few weeks of being in Sunday school. It is famous, Moses receiving God's call. And really, there's two big things that happens. And I'm going to try cover chapters 3 all the way through 6, but I want to look at two particular aspects today. I want to look at how God reveals himself to us. That's the word revelation. It's a kind of fancy word that mostly Christians use, but revelation basically means God revealing himself. It's more than just understanding. It's something that speaks of God making himself known to us, that not just our minds are illuminated, but our hearts too see something of God and go, oh my goodness, this is who he is. And there is this amazing aha, wow moment in our minds and our hearts as we see God. Moses is going to have a moment like that. It's called revelation. And then we're going to look at the other part of this message, reluctance. Moses' response is reluctance. And I don't know where you are in your faith journey, whether you are a follower of Jesus and you've said yes to following him, or maybe you're totally uncertain about the claims of Christ, the claims of the Bible. Let me tell you that every human being who has moved towards God has felt feelings of reluctance. And we can trace our story all the way back to our first fathers in the faith who also spoke of and felt reluctance. And I'm going to suggest to you today that actually your reluctance before God may actually be a good thing. I'll tell you why in a bit. So let's read from chapter 3. We're going from verses 1 through 14, and I'll spend most of my time unpacking that. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned." When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, up out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Wow. This is a radical encounter that Moses has with God. And I think it's good for us to get a bit of historical context. You see, you and I live in a world filled with Google and libraries and YouTube and all kinds of spaces where we can get any kind of information we want. Not so much in the days of Moses and Pharaoh and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In those days, there wasn't a huge uh, library of information. In fact, there wasn't even a Bible, just to remind yourself of this. And so their conception of God was way less refined, way less developed than what we've got, because they didn't have an Old and a New Testament. They didn't have all manner of information that they could gather to develop who they understood God to be. You see, the main god of the time was a god named Marduk. What a name, hey? It's a scary name just to say it, Marduk. And, and, and Marduk was the, uh, the earliest creation account was of this guy named Marduk. And really, he creates the world in this sort of tale that they tell. Marduk creates the world out of a clash with another goddess, and her name is Tiamat. And they have this clash, and Marduk is the champion of the clash, and he creates the world out of this clash, and he creates humans to be his slaves. Humans in this story are basically slaves of the god Marduk. And every now and again, a king would essentially begin to understand himself as one of the sons of the gods. And, of course, in this story, in this time, one of them was Pharaoh. He understood himself to have attained a kind of godlike status. And so I hope you're getting to pick up what's going on here. You've got this god, Marduk, who is seen to be kind of the creator, the most powerful one. And now you've got Pharaoh, who sees himself as one of the sons of the gods. And he, too, is able to have some sort of power to enslave people. Even the Egyptians were kinds of slaves, albeit that the Hebrew uh, community were much lesser slaves. But if you were a god, you could enslave people. They were to worship you. They were to do your bidding and to do whatever you told them. It's into this world that the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, reveals himself to Moses. And Moses would have had this mixed picture because he knew God had revealed himself to Abraham, the God who would bless and cause him to be a blessing and give a land. But he, he was still understanding what is this God like. Amazingly, this uh, God begins, and we'll start to see if you go back to Genesis, that the God of, uh, father, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob doesn't create people to be slaves. He, he creates people in his image and his likeness. Not to be slaves, but to be partners with him in bringing flourishing to the world. And you start to read these accounts and you realize that in so many ways, when God is revealing himself, he is revealing himself in contrast to the understanding of what the gods were like in the time. And so here we go. This is what you pick up as we started to read this encounter. Firstly, as God reveals himself to Moses, he reveals that he is holy. Did you pick that up? As Moses is moving towards the burning bush, it says this, Do not come near. Take off your sandals, for this place in which you stand is holy ground. Wow. So this God is other. The word holy is one of the hardest words to explain in the Bible, but it simply means this, that God is other than. Although he created us in his image and likeness, he is not 
us. We are not gods. We are never going to be a god. God is God, and we are his creation. He's the creator. We are the created. God is holy. Secondly, we see that God is covenant-keeping. He reveals himself as a covenant-keeping God. He says this, I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is getting Moses into a nostalgic moment. He goes, Abraham, my my great-great-great-great-granddad, you made a promise to him, and now you're keeping your promise through me? This is amazing. You think of those little staffy dogs who get a fluffy toy in their mouth, and as hard as you try to pull that thing out, you just can't pull it out. God is so fiercely committed to making and keeping his promises that he holds on and he never lets go. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's holy. He's covenant-keeping. We see also as Moses is moving towards this burning bush and hearing God, he's getting revelation that God is a God who sees who hears and who knows. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. Oh, wow. This is such a unique thought. In that world, a God who sees, who hears, who knows, who feels with people and who goes, this is not okay. There is a God of compassion who is breaking into a world of enslavement and harshness from leaders. There is a God of grace and love. It doesn't stop there. We see that Moses is realizing also, he's got a revelation that God comes down and he is a delivering God. He says, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land. God looks at problems And he doesn't sort of look away and go, wow, what a pity I made that mess. He sees problems and he sees brokenness and he says, I am committed to it. I am going to move in on it. Of course, in hindsight, now that we do have the rest of the story of Scripture, we've got the beautiful story of Jesus who comes and shows God's deep commitment to move in on the mess of our lives and to show his radical love for us. He comes down and he delivers. He doesn't look from a distance and send letters and say, all the best with that. He comes and he feels and he lives with. And then we see that he's also a God who sends. He's a God who sends. He looks at Moses in verse 10 and he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. This is probably when Moses begins to wonder why he walked towards this bush. (laughs) And he starts to feel levels of regret, wondering, why did I get so inquisitive? Why did I care about what was happening in this silly burning bush? Uh, God is a bit like Gandalf, who moves into the Shire, and he gets to Frodo's little hobbit hole, and he says, come. There's something bigger than living in a neat little packaged life where you've got beautiful uh, green grass and some flowers growing. There is adventure to partner with the creator in doing something beautiful in the name of God. God is a God who sends, but beautifully, how's this? He is a God who is with those he sends. Think of verse 12, which says, he said, but I will be with you. Isn't that amazing? This God who says, go do something, is the very same God who says, I will come with you. And we're going to carry on as we read through the book of Exodus. At no point do you ever feel like God is not with Moses. 
And astoundingly, if you flash forward almost 2,000 years, Jesus gives the great commission, the, the great fulfillment of all that Moses and the Exodus happens. Jesus becomes that. And his great commission, he says, all authority has been given to me. And he tells this beautiful commission. He sends his disciples. And right at the end, what does he say? And surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. God sends, but he commits to go with. And that is the pattern of God. Now, I hope you're getting this, because for Moses, this was a wow moment. And for us in an information-ridden world, sometimes information doesn't always turn into revelation. At the speed at which many of us move, we don't slow enough to go, oh my goodness, this is the God that is. This is the I am. This is a powerful moment, by the way. Moses says, so who should I say is going to be, you know, who is this God? Who can I tell them about? And he says, tell them, I am is sending you. I am that I am. Now, a name meant a lot in Scripture. For us, names don't mean that much. I only found out the meaning of my name quite later into my life. In the beginning, I just thought Roger was, you know, the name that was assigned to me, and I wasn't crazy about it. felt a little clumsy, and I never really liked my name until I found out what it means. You can go check it out. It's pretty exciting. I was quite stoked about what it meant. But, it, but in Bible times, a, ma- a name meant so much. It spoke of meaning and, and purpose and what it was about. And here we get God saying, I am. He basically is declaring that he is the ultimate. He's coming from the outside. I am that I am. There is no other besides me. I have come in and I am the great I am. It's from where we get the term Yahweh, a term that Jewish people wouldn't bear or dare to even say the full term. It was so sacred, so beautiful, so important. This is what revelation is. Revelation is is about us moving towards the burning bush. It's about us moving towards not stepping away and saying, would you show me yourself? Would you help me to understand what you're like? It was really simple. I mean, Moses just moved towards and God began to do all the hard work of revealing himself. And amazingly, that's still true, by the way. Maybe you're going, I don't know how to know God. I, I want revelation. Let me tell you, you make some tiny steps towards God and he makes some really big steps towards you. The scripture is full of promises that if we just move tiny bits towards him, he moves radically towards us. So that's revelation. What, what does Moses do when he sees this God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this great sending God, this holy God? How does Moses respond? I'm so relieved at how he responds because it makes me feel so safe. He says, no, thank you. Pure reluctance. He is filled with reluctance. He doesn't do much by way of going, yay, like Donkey and Shrek, pick me, pick me. He simply does the exact opposite, and he says, no, don't pick me. I don't want to be part of this. Just this week, as I was reading the Bible and, and praying, I felt like God said, you know, you need to learn to find me more in the unplanned, the unexpected, and the unwanted. And I realized, my goodness, Moses was in so much of that space. It was unplanned, unexpected, unwanted, and we want to be in control of all those things. And so much of God's inbreaking comes in those spaces. Are you like me and Moses, who's often reluctant? I'm going to suggest to you that that might not be the worst thing. I uh, love going to weddings. 
And uh, weddings are one of those happy celebrations. We just spoke about Tatiana's wedding. But weddings inevitably get to that time in the day where there's a dance floor. And I actually don't mind a bit of dancing, you know, just move around. And, and one of my favorite parts of a dance floor is when everybody is just shuffling about. You know, they're just shuffling. There's no real order to it. And the kids are dancing and you're moving down with them. And then Nix and I do a little bit of a move. And we just enjoy dancing. But then there's always one of you. I don't know who you are. But you dance well, and you love turning the shuffling dance floor into the circle. And when the circle happens, it's the worst thing for me. Because all the good dancers, you know, they, they love the circle because they get to show off their moves. And they saunter into the middle, and they do stuff like you never imagined people could do. And everyone's cheering, and the wedding's just going wild. But process of elimination says, my turn is coming. I'm going to get that nudge. I'm going to get pulled in by someone in the circle. And Roger, with two left feet, is going to have to make a plan. It's terrifying. And you feel your whole body getting reluctant. Moses starts to speak like this. Moses gets that wedding dance floor circle experience. Listen to verse uh, 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? He's like freezing up. Don't send me. I, I don't want to go. What if that happens? So God assures him with these three signs, which are just most magnificent signs. First, he says, hey, put your staff down on the ground. And as he puts his staff down on the ground, a piece of stick turns into a snake. And then God says, pick it up by the tail. Unthinkable thing to do. And as he picks it up, it turns back into a staff. Wow. Then God says, okay, that's not enough. You want more? Put your hand into your coat. And he does it, and he pulls it out, and his hand has just gone flaky and leprous. Leprosy was a very devastating disease in the time. He says, put your arm back in. Puts it in, comes out, healed. Wow. And then, and then he says, actually, and also, I'm going to turn the Nile into blood. Moses gets these three signs. And what does Moses do after these power signs? 4 verse 10. Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Another fantastic excuse. Not me, Lord. I mean, if you're going to get me to do some stuff, maybe you need some muscle. I could do that. Someone to look after sheep. Cool. But I can't speak. Pretty decent excuse. This is my favorite one, though. Go three verses ahead. Four verse 13. Now Moses has run out of creative excuses. And he's just got manners left. He's got reverence for the God. He's standing on holy ground. And here's what he says. It says in verse 13, But Moses said, Pardon your servant. Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> I love that one. He has nothing left except, Please send someone else. Moses has got to the end of his creativity and he just says, I'm fully reluctant. I have no interest in going. I don't want to do this. I know that Pharaoh. I know those people. And I just know myself. I'm terrified. This isn't exciting. And God says, I'm going to be with you. And what I love about this is that there is such a powerful connection. This beautiful, big God, the creator God, comes into Moses' reluctance and he begins to walk with him. He begins to show him that it's not about the impressiveness of Moses' gifts or the impressiveness of Moses' strength of resolve. It's about the God that he is with. This is what matters most. Now, I want you to consider your own reluctance. And I said to you in the beginning that maybe your reluctance could be 
actually a good thing? Why could reluctance be a good thing? I mean, nobody wants to get laughed at by an Egyptian king. Nobody wants to try to convince a group of people who don't want to be convinced and look like a fool. What could it be? Well, here's the thing. If you are never in a space before God that you are reluctant towards him, that means you might not even be in relationship with him. And that is way, way more concerning. My biggest concern is that there is nothing in your life to be reluctant about. And there is nothing in your relationship with God that can cause you to be reluctant towards him. The story of the scriptures is a God who is doing way more than we could ever imagine and is calling us to do way more than we could in our own strength. And the story of scripture is God saying, come join me. And most of the time in our human hearts, we tend to go, no, thank you. But those three words, no, thank you, are the beginning of working out a relationship with a loving God. No reluctance means no relationship. And I would suggest that whether you are brand new to faith, still considering faith, have been serving Jesus for a long time, if you're on this side of the age to come, you will have loads and loads of moments in the presence of God where you will feel reluctant. And I want to say that's okay. You're in good company. Because reluctance says you've got relationship. And if you've got relationship, you've got God with you. And if you've got God with you, you can take your reluctance to him. And in his love, he can begin to transform it one stage at a time. Now, one of the things that we're, uh, terms that you'll hear over and over in our generation is this term functional atheism. There's this reality that we can believe in God without believing God. I'd term that functional atheism. We could pitch up a church. We could say a few prayers here and there, maybe. But if they just wrote prayers that we're just saying without any real relationship to God or any trust in Him, well, that's functional atheism. What I love about this beautiful passage is that God noticed Moses coming over. He came to this burning bush, and God sees him coming over, and he takes that little glimmer of faith, but like the prodigal son story, he just comes over the horizon. There's this tiny bit of faith, and the father runs out. God sees Moses just coming towards the bush, and he says, this is my gap. He's interested, and I am loving, and I will show my love to him. And he begins to reveal this covenant-keeping God of his father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what are you reluctant about? Because your reluctance might be the very place that God is building relationship with you. In that space of reluctance, God is calling you into trust to show that he is God, that he does love you, that he is someone who cares, that he is the creator and that he can do it. Hey, let me think of a few examples that have uh, been happening just in our community in the last couple of weeks. I've had conversations with people where they've been reluctant, but they've, begin to, they've begun to say yes. I, I think I've actually chatting to two guys who've just joined our kids, kids ministry team. Reluctant, but stepped in, and God is already starting to stir their hearts. Think of another guy who started addiction recovery course, was totally unexcited about it, but knew by faith in God he needed to deal with this. Reaching out to a leader, somebody recently, just to get help because relationship stuff was way beyond what they could deal with on their own. Reaching out for help. 
starting to give uh, financially, taking on the challenge of leading a life group. Some people said, you know what? I'm nervous, I'm scared, but I'm gonna do it. Saying yes to going to counseling after years of knowing it's needed. Joining a life group, even though there was such great fear of, 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 of being part of it. Setting the alarm and obeying it in the name of being with God in the morning, even after so many failed attempts. Saying sorry to people. Making invitations and initiating friendships with poor and marginalized people beyond uh, that, that are in our lives. Creating a meal roster for a life group so that people can feel fed when you gather. Buying a Bible and a journal to implement and engage with God in it. <laughs> Committing to receiving Jesus, his love and his forgiveness and starting a relationship of following him. Getting baptized because you actually trust Jesus, that he is as good as he says he is. Hey, there's, there's so many more things that could be filled with reluctance, but actually they're steps of faith. Starting a mom's group for newborns. I think of how possible that could be. Plan a spontaneous, extravagant act of financial generosity. Interrupting a gossip-filled conversation and saying, hey, do you think I could pull out of this? Or maybe we could actually stop this conversation. It's not helping me, it's not helping us, and it's definitely not helping the person we're talking about. <gasps> Reluctant? Of course. Is it the right thing by faith? Absolutely. There's so many things. They could be large. They could be small. Our reluctance need not only be when we think of big faith ventures like starting an NGO or starting an orphanage or moving to another country in the name of Jesus. It starts with the little day by days of saying, you are God and you love me and your ways are best and I'm going to trust you in them. Of course, Moses' moment was huge and terrifying, but sometimes the smallest steps in our lives are also huge and terrifying. How many of us, just to say, yes, I need help, would you help me? Or to go to counseling, or whatever it may be, is a terrifying step, but a very crucial one of faith. If you're in a space of reluctance, take your reluctance to God and let it be a place where you build relationship with him. For some, it's to pray for the first time, to actually utter those words, teach me to trust you. Show me what you're like. Give me a burning bush type experience. Maybe it's to pray this each morning. Here I am, Lord. Do with me what you will, but don't leave me in functional atheism. Speak to me. Call me. Challenge me to partner with you in any form of redemption. I'm not calling us to something elaborate. I'm calling us to bring our reluctance towards God and to let our reluctance be a sign that God wants relationship. And it could be in that unexpected, unplanned, even unwanted space that God is beginning to birth something very precious, very important, and very transformative. Not just for me, not just for you, but for us, for the world, for what we are a part of. Chapters 5 and 6 carry on and simply say that the Pharaoh looks at Moses and he does laugh. <laughs> he laughs at him and he says, this is not going to happen. I'm not letting these people go. And you know what Pharaoh says? I'm going to make their lives more difficult. He takes away some of their resources and he makes them work even harder than they were before doesn't mean just because you say yes to Jesus and yes to following him that it becomes easy the moment you say yes. It just means that he is going to be with you. And in his timing, he will unfold a plan of redemption that will go beyond what you could imagine. 
So let me land by asking, what are you wrestling with God about? In the, ve- the, the, the end part of chapter 6, verse 6, God says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God is not primarily focusing on your reluctance. He's asking you to focus on his willingness. He will take us. He is in the business of redeeming and doing beautiful work. We simply need to bring our reluctance and ourselves to him. You might go, but I don't have a leprous arm that turned back good and bad again. I don't have a snake that I could, a staff that I could drop to turn into a snake and pick it up again. Well, the scriptures would say differently. The scriptures would say, yes, you do. In the very life of Jesus, you have one who didn't just heal a leprous uh, hand, but healed multiple leprous bodies. He did it, literally did it. Historians are struggling to refute that Jesus lived and he performed the miracles that he did. There's no other way to explain the movement that has happened around the world. And you might go, but what about the staff and the snake? I don't have one of those. Well, the Bible says that Jesus in his life defeated the serpent once and for all. Once in his temptation in the desert, the snake who comes to tempt him, Jesus doesn't give in to temptation. I wish I could say that of myself, but I can't. I've fallen for multiple temptations multiple times over and over and over, but Jesus never did. His greatest temptation moment is in the garden just before he's going to the cross and he's sweating, drips of blood, and the snake once again comes and tempts him and says, there's an easier way out. You don't need to go to the cross. And he chooses to say, not my will, God, but your will be done. And he goes to the cross. And it's there that more than just taming the Nile he, and turning the Nile into blood, he lets his own blood be shed. And his own blood is poured out that we could experience redemption. You you don't have those miracles necessarily, but you do have the miracle. The miracle of the God who came in human form and loved us like we could never imagine. And in love defeated death and darkness and sin so that our lives can once again be started afresh and begin the age to come right here and now. You feeling reluctant? You're in the right place. Let your reluctance become part of the beginning of a beautiful and deep relationship with God. Won't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, this amazing morning, we just thank you that our reluctance is not enough to turn you away. But actually in our reluctance, we bring ourselves to you and say, would you build our relationship with you? You are a covenant-keeping and kind God, and we trust you. I pray for people today whose reluctance has caught them out, has caused too much guilt, caused them to think that they're not worthy, that even today there would be a sense of bringing reluctance, knowing that you are a very kind and radically generous God. I pray that today we would see you for who you are 
and that our revelation wouldn't just be categorized with all the other information that we have, that our revelation of you would be sacred and precious and beautiful, and that we'd live off of that as the most important facts that live in our heads and our hearts, and they would shape how we live and what we do, that we'd be a people marked by presence, presence with you, formation, becoming like you, Jesus, and mission, loving the world the way you call us to love the world, and that out of that space, we would live in the spirit that Moses lived, humbly before his God, walking, partnering with you in your story of redemption. We thank you for your grace, and we pray, God, that we can be together, but while we're not, we thank you that every challenge, every unplanned, unexpected, and unwanted thing that we go through is you journeying with us to build us into the kind of people you want us to be. So we don't despise these days. We choose to embrace you in these days and thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name.